I bought accountability that day. My wife wasn't going to let me off the hook. I got into motion. First deal was a wholesale transaction. I made $5,000 and I thought about what it took to earn $5,000. This was in you know 2008. I would wait for the phone to ring so I could do an overtime in the firehouse and pray that I was next man up so I could trade another 14 hours of my life for, for the city of Lynn, Massachusetts. And it's just crazy. I got a check in my hand, Sean, and it was $5,000. And I left the attorney's office and I was waiting for five zero to show up, man. I, I Like it felt illegal. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm waiting for the big black sedans to show up. So that was it, man. That was the catalyst. Once I did it that one time, you can't ever tell me it doesn't work. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn. Today, we have Dave Seymour. Dave is a real estate investor based in Boston and was the host of the hit TV show, Flipping Boston. In this episode, Dave will tell us what to do to start investing in real estate from humble beginnings and how you can leverage your relationships to become a successful investor as well. If you're new to this podcast, welcome to the show. If you thought it was informative and engaging, consider subscribing to the podcast. We release episodes every Wednesday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lending company based in the Bay Area and has funded over $2 billion over the past few years. We offer competitive rates and amazing service. And for being an Everything Real Estate Investing Show listener, you'll get a discount on your processing fee. So whether you're looking for a bridge loan for your next fix and flip project, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan on an investment property, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get the process started. All right, Dave, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Oh, my name is Dave Seymour. I'm a real estate investor, man. Yeah, some of your, your audience may recognize me from the hit TV show, Flipping Boston. We did that a few years back here on the A&E Network. But hey, man, I got a story. I was a firefighter for years and financially illiterate. Then I got a little smart. I learned real estate. And now I'm hanging out with Sean Penn in the Bay Area. And I'm here in, in sunny Boston, so it's all good, man. How small the world gets, huh? That's awesome. So do you want to tell us how you got started with real estate investing? Yeah, sure. Look, I started, I was kind of forced into it. I'm an immigrant to this country. I emigrated in 1986. I came from a working class background in London, England. I was told to work hard, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, trade another hour of time for somebody else's money. Don't ask any questions, do as you're told. It kind of patted me on the head and sent me out into the workforce. And, you know, it's funny. I love America. It's, it's like we're such a melting pot of cultures and personalities. But at the end of the day, I remember I was on a, a call recently with a gentleman and he, he got me kind of misty eyed because he started asking me about, you know, what it was like to, to actually become a citizen. And because today I carry an American passport, it took me back to when I was getting sworn in in Faneuil Hall in Boston and just how exciting it was to, to know that, you know, a cool journey was about to begin. And it was. I was young. I was 20 years old. And I kind of always had the entrepreneurial spirit, Sean, to be very frank with you, man. It's like, you know, I, I wasn't good at being told what to do. <laughs> we'll kind of leave it at that. And I tried a few things, which didn't work out too well. But I fell into what I now look back as a gift and a trap at the same time was I got one of those good government jobs 
friend of mine said to me, brother, he says, you want to be a cop or a firefighter or, or a mailman or a teacher? Get one of those good government jobs. He said, you get one of those bad boys and you're all set. You get to do a 40-year career. You get a government pension. Dude, that's the way to go. I liked it. I liked what I did. I was a firefighter and a paramedic. And I spent 16 years doing that. But with that came my financial illiteracy that I got from my poor dad, as my friend Robert Kiyosaki says, right? My poor dad was running point. And you know, I found myself at age, was 36. I was married with a kid and I couldn't make ends meet. And I got one job. This is America. They don't restrict the amount of hours we can work. So I got two jobs and this is America. They don't restrict the amount of hours we work. And I got three jobs. I got big old fat credit card bills. And I got a wife that doesn't seem happy and a kid that doesn't see his father. And a whole bunch of crap, man, to be very direct with you. I was losing my house. 2006, 7, 8, I followed the rest of the herd. Got sucked into subprime lending, only I was on the wrong side of the equation. And my house was in foreclosure. And I was looking to short sell my property while I was carrying over $70,000 in unsecured debt. So I've been broke. I've been down. I've been beat. I've been beat up. And I started saying some prayers in my truck one day. I'm screaming and shouting at my God. I was on a construction site, actually. I was so overwhelmed. I left the construction site on my second job because all firefighters tend to work second jobs. And I was hurting, man. It's funny to go back there now, seeing as you asked, but I'm screaming and shouting at him. I'm like, what are you doing, man? I've done everything I'm supposed to do. You know, I came to the, to the land of opportunity, and my, my American dream is a freaking American nightmare, man, you know? And right at that moment in time, there was a commercial that came on the radio. Teach me foreclosure, a free one and a half hour seminar coming to your neck of the woods. No money down real estate could get you out of the situations you're in today. Blah, 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 blah. And that was it, brother. That was it. I showed up with 300 other broke people looking to get out of financial destitution, looking for financial freedom through sticks and bricks. And I knew it worked, Sean. I knew it worked because I'd seen it in my own career. I'd seen investors coming up on my job sites. I'm digging ditches and they're cashing checks. And I thought to myself, it's got to work. And I started looking around at some of these investors. And to be very honest with you, man, they weren't that smart. They weren't. They weren't, they weren't overly engaging. You know how some people are engaging, like you want to talk to them, you want to hear what they have to say? These people were not that way. And I thought to myself, well, if those guys and girls can do it, I know I can. I just need to know how. And that's how it started, man. My first real estate transaction was a wholesale deal. I found out they weren't lying. You can't do real estate with no money down. And my wife, Mary Beth, she became my first private lender. She put the last $27,000 on her credit cards for my training and education. <laughs> wow. You know, I look back at it today and obviously money well spent, but I look back at it today and I think to myself, what did I really do that day? And what I did for me was, was I, I purchased some accountability because a lot of people talk, as I'm sure you've experienced, right? They talk, they say they're going to do this, they're going to do that, and they end up doing very, very little. And I bought accountability that day. My wife wasn't going to let me off the hook. And I got into motion. First deal was a wholesale transaction. I made $5,000 and I thought about what it took to 
earn $5,000. This was in, you know, 2008. I would wait for the phone to ring so I could do an overtime in the firehouse and pray that I was next man up. So I could trade another 14 hours of my life for, for the city of Lynn, Massachusetts. And it's just crazy. I got a check in my hand, Sean, and it was $5,000. And I left the attorney's office and I was waiting for five zero to show up, man. I, I Like it felt illegal. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm waiting for the big black sedans to show up. So that was it, man. That was the catalyst. Once I did it that one time, you can't ever tell me it doesn't work. And I just stayed in motion ever since, one foot in front of the other in front of the other, in front of the other. And today I've touched pretty much everything that there is in the capital markets around real estate and transactions, large, small. I've done them all, baby. There you go. How was that? That was pretty good, right? That's an amazing story. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to ask you a question. So there's a lot of people out there who do, you know, go to these seminars and spend, you know, 27,000 of their last, I guess all they have left. And of those 300 people that were there with you, I'm pretty sure not all 300 of them were able to do what you were able to do. What do you think was like that differentiating factor? That's a fantastic question, isn't it? And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of emotionally charged if you think about it too. A couple of things. I look back at it today and if they told me to jump, I said, how high? If they told me to turn left, I said, okay, and I took a left. I stopped let my own pride and my ego get in the way of my progress. I stopped analysis paralysis, I believed, and I worked a lot, Sean, on my personal development as well as my business development to transition from, you know, a working class mentality, and it's not morality, it's not right or wrong, it just is, but to come from a working class blue collar background and to step into the places that I ended up stepping into, it absolutely changed my life, and I had to do a lot of work, and it's unfortunate, man, but People are just lazy. I don't know whether they expected it was a scratch ticket. I don't know if it was a lottery to them. But everybody has an opportunity when you've got a plan. It's up to you to execute on the plan. And for me, it was 24-7. I sacrificed a little. And that's not true. I sacrificed a lot. I remember my boys in the firehouse used to say to me, Seymour, where are you, brother? I'd be like, what? Where are you, man? You're not here. You're not hanging out in the day room, Dave. You're not watching the Red Sox. You're not watching the New England Patriots beat the 49ers again. He's like, you know, where are you, man? You're not with us anymore. And I was upstairs. I was in my room when we weren't working. I was on my computer and I was implementing the things that I've learned. And I think that's a huge part of it because people who go into education arenas expecting a, you know, just roll the dice. It's going to be okay because he or she said, no, you got to do the work. And I needed the... I needed some structure to implement. And the funny thing is, Sean, straight up, man, full transparency, I paid $27,000 for five classes. I think it was wholesaling, lease option, you know, rehabbing, private money, and something else, right? I only attended two out of the three classes. And I look back at it today, and again, it's because I had enough information to push me forward through the coaches that came into my life, the mentors that came into my life. And then I learned very, very quickly to make sure that I was based out of reciprocity and to come to the table, every table, with something of value for somebody else first, rather than always having my hand out saying, hey, what can you do for me? And that philosophy has served me well. It's put me on stages with 
with Tony Robbins. I was on a phone call last week with Jack Canfield, the uh, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Been a personal guide to me throughout my career. Damon John from Shark Tank. I just hired, uh, hired, that's, that's the incorrect term. I just landed one of the original sharks to come on board with us as uh, part of our advisory board. Like I've been around some really substantial people and for that I'm incredibly grateful. But you're right, not everybody in that room went out and did what I did. They might have done it on a different scale, I don't know. I love LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I like the lack of like social garbage that's on there. It seems to be more dialed into business and business types. And I was uh, bouncing some commentary with a guy who just took down, they got like 1,400 doors. They're in the Carolinas. They're multifamily investors like myself. And as I looked at their back office, I recognized one of the guys on their team, one of their uh, managers. And it was a guy who had come to one of my events years ago. And it's funny, he reached out to me and he went, Dave, I just want to let you know, he said, your story was inspirational. Your education laid out a foundation. I was going through a tough time in my life, a divorce. He said, and you were there for me. So I wanted to thank you for that. Oh, and by the way, look at me now. Na, 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 na. You know what I mean? And it was like, that was exciting to see that. So I know it works if you work it. It doesn't work if you don't participate in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have a problem of getting in their own way. Like, you know, you go to the classes, they tell you, here's what you have to do. And then something inside them says, I don't want to do it. Like they don't want to make the phone calls. They don't want to send out the letters, but they've seen people who do those things and they are very successful with it. There's a lot of, I don't want to use the word tacky, but easily repetitive terms in wealth creation. So let's throw a couple of them out there, right? If you're the smartest person in the room, then we know you're in the wrong room, right? Your network is a direct correlation of your net worth. No wonder I don't get to fly with the eagles because I spend all my time hanging out with the turkeys. So you've got, you understand what I'm saying? You've got all of this, like this currency of experience that people don't tap into. One of my business partners today is one of the three managers in our fund. Young guy, he's 24 years old. His name's Eric Wilson. And I just identified with him. He was talking in one of my classes I was teaching. And the kid was engaged. Like there was no texting. Like if you go to an event that you invested capital to be at, don't text while you're there. I don't care if you're, you're important. You're not more important than the information that's coming from the expert in front of you. Put your goddamn phone down and pay attention, right? So this guy was engaged, man. He was definitely on point. And we connected after the event. I shared some information with him. He invested in the particular program that I was a part of. It was a $35,000 investment. And he said to me later, he said, I spent $35,000 so I could have your phone number and your email. And I thought to myself, well, that could be an ego stroke, right? I'm worth 35000 No. You know what it was, was he saw a plan. He saw a value. You know, I'm 53. He's 24. I've seen some stuff, man. I've done some stuff. I've made some mistakes. I've already paid for them. He doesn't have to make those mistakes in his career if he's aligned with me. And he was a, a comsci major with a, you know, a, a soup son of real estate on the side, shall we say. But he was programming for uh, fidelity in the markets. He was it's incredibly smart, this guy, incredibly smart. And he came in, into the office one day, and we, we had a loose relationship, loose business relationship. He said, I got great news. I go, what's that, Eric? He said, I just got hijacked by the uh, regional vice president of fidelity. I go, what do you mean hijacked? He said, well, I gave him my two weeks notice. 
And I thought I was just doing an exit interview and they hijacked me and they offered to double my salary, right? Double my salary, six figure salary, double it. So I have two emotions to that or two internal dialogues. The first dialogue was, I'm so excited for you, man. You just doubled your salary. You learned the powerful lesson of leverage. Well done, son, right? And then the other side of me is like, oh, I didn't want to lose this guy. You know what I mean? Like there was some stuff that we could have built together. And then he turns around, he looks at me and he goes, good news. I go, what? He said, I told him to shove it. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, man. He said, let's go build some business. Let's go. He said, you got what I don't have. I've got what you don't have. So, you know, I could have gotten away of that. I could have said to him, you know what? You're crazy. Call him back and take your salary. And I said to him, I said, that feels like a, a lot of responsibility for me to perform. And it was good because I'm soft as a sneaker full of doo-doo caca. They call me the iron marshmallow. I might look all bad on the outside, but I'm soft and gooey on the inside. And I said to this guy, I said to him, I said, you know, that's a lot of responsibility. And he gave me a reality check, Sean, to be frank with you. He kind of slapped me. He said, I'm 24 years old. I'm a grown-up. I'm not your kid. I know what I'm doing. I went, okay. And he was absolutely right because now we're a private equity fund managing $100 million of other people's capital investing in multifamily markets throughout the United States of America, offering double-digit returns. How are you doing? You know what I mean? So it's like I could have screwed that up by stepping in the way instead of getting out of the way to your point. So yeah, absolutely. I think one of the strengths of a good CEO is to get out of the way. I'm just the conductor of an orchestra. My job as a CEO is to bring a, an excellent team together and then just facilitate execution of the plan. That's it. I'm a coach. And that's good because to be very frank with you, I don't know what some of my team members do, but they do it incredibly well and they make me look good. So keep on doing it. That's awesome. And when you're just getting started, it's pretty hard to find the right team members. So what did you do to make sure you were surrounded with the right people? I knew they were. Like before we started recording, you, I asked you how you started. You know, how'd you get going? You're a young guy and you went to a lot of meetup groups and you talked about, you know, how you built a network. And, you know, meetup wasn't as prevalent back then as it was today. For us, it was real estate investment club meetings. And, you know, I learned very quickly that there's a lot of conversation, but it doesn't always translate into action. So what I did was, was I stopped talking, which isn't easy for me to do, as you've noticed. But I stopped talking and I started listening and I began to identify the true operators rather than the bullshitters because there's a ton of those out there, right? Especially in this industry, a lot of ego. And I consciously would find, I'd kind of like make a list for myself and I get this question all the time, what should I do first? Do what I did. And what I did was, was I made a list of the things that I considered valuable about me and how I could help somebody else. And in doing so, I had something to offer other than capital. Example, and not everybody's a firefighter, but as a firefighter in the city of Lynn, Massachusetts, you know, I know the operators in the city of Lynn, Massachusetts. Inspectors, building inspectors, city workers, the inside scoop on, you know, the path of progress for the city planner, all of these inside you know, tri tips and tricks, if you will, that I had. I had a construction background. I wasn't very good at it, but I had some skills. I had a network. Hey, uh, you know, if you're looking for a really good tile guy, make sure you give me a call. I got this guy. He's fantastic. Price per square foot is great. He cares about his work. Brazilian kid. He's beautiful. Give me a call. Let me know. That's valuable. That's valuable. And as I began to expand that network, I quickly learned who to be around and who not to be around. 
and it was kind of interesting too. I also learned that rejection is actually a good thing. I celebrated my nose early on in my career. And I think some people have a tough time with that. They think it's all personal. And the people who told me I was going to fail, they're funny. They're the same people who now in success, you know, want to take credit for it. You know, yeah, he's never going to make it. And now, you know, 10 years, 12 years later, they're like, yeah, I always knew Dave was going to get this. He was a go-getter. He was a good guy. You know what I mean? So look, yeah, check your ego. Find out how you can be of value to other people. Understand that 95% of it is bullshit. The other 5% is reality. And start learning business. I mean, do you know what the 80-20 rule is? Do you know how to time block? Do you know how to delegate? Do you know how to you know, build a almost like a military-type organization from the top down? And are you prepared to be responsible for all the outcomes, good, bad, or ugly? And if you can begin to do that, then you, know, you have a great opportunity. Tim Ferriss. You know, understanding the way Tim Ferriss does business, looks at business. Gary V, you know, he's all about driving great relationships with his customers and bringing that same culture into his business. You know, I said to my guys just last week, I said, look, I might be the CEO. I said, but you know what? I don't drive this bus. You know, I just direct it. You guys drive it. Let me know what you need, and I'll make sure I bring the tools that you need to be efficient in the jobs that you have within the company. So, you know, it's really a case of being able to bring something of value. Like the new guys say all the time, you know, Dave, what's the first thing I should do? Write write that list of what you have that's valuable and bring that to the party and then see how you can build a, a relationship based on reciprocity first, get to know each other. I don't do business with anybody, anybody I don't like. I've turned away hundreds of millions of dollars, I would guess, in my career from people who wanted to invest with me, but I, I don't like them. I'm not up for ego trips. I'm not up for, you know, what a friend of I used to call them. Damn, I'm good. Just ask me. Dig jams. He used to call them dig jams. D-I-G-G-A-M. Damn, I'm good. D-I-G. I'm good. Just ask me. You figure it out, right? Dig jam. You know, they're the kind of people you ask them a question or they ask you a question and then they start to answer their own question just to hear themselves speak. You know, my team is built around passion. It's built around authenticity. It's built around drive. With Eric, it's built around automating and systems and creativity. I mean, it's exciting to get up and participate in my life today. You know what I mean? And to go full circle with you, Sean, get out of the way. You know, get out of the way. Every time I put my fingers in it, I screw it up. So I try not to touch too much of anything. Nice. I want to transition into how you got onto TV and what that whole experience was like. Sure. You know, it goes back to really that 300 people in a room like I did what they told me to do and I wasn't surprised that it worked but it was interesting the people that I was learning from started paying attention to the results I was getting and one of the guys said to me one time he said you know what Dave you should go teach and I'm like what do you mean teach in the back of my head I'm thinking to myself I'm not a teacher I'm not an educator I can't get up in front of a room of people and do this And in the back of my head, I'm feeling like a phony because I'm no longer $70,000 in debt. I'm now $20,000 in debt. I stopped the foreclosure of my house, but I'm still working in the firehouse, right? I've dialed back all the jobs. Things are moving in the right direction. And he said to me, look, man, he said, go out and tell the truth. He said, you don't always have to be the expert. He said, but you can report on what the expert has achieved in their career and what they've done for you. I went, yeah, I can do that. That's okay. So I started teaching, and it was funny. I I took to it like a duck to water, man. I mean, 
I've taught to a room with a thousand people in San Francisco. I've done 16,000 people stages in, in Canada. I've, you know, TV shows and everything else later on. But that focus, if you will, got me to understand marketing because I started hanging out with some of the very best online marketers, the very best direct mail marketers, brand creators, if you will. And one of those guys sent me a link, I'd say it was 2000 and late nine, somewhere around there, to uh, a film company in New York that was trying to produce a new show. And I thought to myself, hmm, it could be kind of cool, you know, sitting there watching all those other guys um, flip this flop or whatever the hell it was called back then. So I loaded the uh, application. It was an online application you just sent in. I loaded it with profanity. And I mean, bad profanity, Sean. I mean, the stuff that... You know, your mother and your grandmother would never want to hear come out of their little baby's mouth, you know, and name of your company, go for yourself, LLC, you know, stuff like that. And I made it so, so gross and so egregious to read that they'd either throw it in the trash or they'd call me. That was really it. There were two options rather than just it sitting in the pile of a thousand other people who thought it was their destiny to be on a TV show. You know what I mean? The last caption was, don't call me. Here's my number, but don't you dare call it. I'm a firefighter. Don't make me kick your ass. Get on a plane, train, or an automobile. Just come up to Boston. Bring the camera and all your shit. Let's start filming. Right? Send. Five minutes later, I get a 212 area code on my phone. I answer the phone, and I I knew it was New York because of the code. And I said, I thought I told you not to call me, you asshole. And I hung up the phone. (laughs) And I'm like... This marketing stuff better work. It either will or it won't. You know what I mean? And the kid called back again, and he was laughing his butt off. He said, you're either a genius or a lunatic. I said, I'm probably both. And that was the start. They came out. I shot a a silly little. We didn't even have GoPros. We didn't have GoPros back then. There was some kind of new gadget. It was like a little camera thing. This was before you had cameras on your iPhones back then. You know, you had this little camera thing and you could upload it onto the internet and send them a little recording. So I did one of those of me and the boys in the firehouse just mucking around. And they liked it. They came out and shot a sizzle reel. Uh, Well, I was doing a project with my ex-partner, Peter, back then. And, you know, they said, get a little angry, see what that looks like. So I had this floor guy. His name was Jimmy. And his name really wasn't Jimmy. He was from the Cambodian community in Lowell, Massachusetts, which I found out later on. It's the second largest Cambodian community in Lowell, Mass. And I said to one of the other guys, what's his real name? And he told me his name. And I'm that dumb white guy who didn't stand a chance of pronouncing it. And I learned that day, that's why we called Jimmy, Jimmy, because he was Jimmy number one. Then there was Jimmy number two. And then we had another Jimmy, Jimmy number three, and these were all Cambodian kids, and they were just funny guys. They were good guys. And I really enjoyed working alongside them because I was still doing some construction. But uh, anyway, long story short, (laughs) Jimmy just lied all the freaking time, man. I mean, it was his favorite thing to do was lie. Like, I'd be at a job site, and I'd call him. i go, Jimmy, go, yep. i go, you at the job? Yep, here right now. i go, you lying son of a gun, dude. I'm here right now. Oh, I'm in the backyard. <laughs> in the backyard, Jimmy. Like, he just lied. That was his thing. So I said to Jimmy, they were doing this little sizzle reel. I go, Jimmy, I'm going to go off on you. He goes, why? I go, I don't know, because I can. They want to film it. He goes, what do you want me to do? I said, nothing. Just do what you always do. He looks at me, he smiles. He goes, you want me to tell you some lies, huh? 
I said, yeah, lie to me, Jimmy. Okay. So, you know, I'm acting. I'm just dicking around with Jimmy. I love this guy. And they saw that. They saw Jimmy. They saw the way we all interacted. And A&E Network, the comment was, that big English guy looks like he could get pretty mad. Let's see some more of that. If anyone listening to this wants a kick, get a real kick out of it, you can see the episodes of Flipping Boston. This is funny, man. You can see the episodes of Flipping Boston on Amazon Prime. Go in there. I think it was season one or season two. There's an episode called New Flipper on the Block. And this was Jimmy number three. Jimmy number three was actually a, uh, an investor. But uh, you get a flavor of how much fun we had doing the show in the early days. Jimmy's mom actually had a Buddhist monk come in and bless the house that we were working on with Jimmy because uh, we thought it was haunted. It had some challenges. And we got to go through a complete home blessing ceremony with these Buddhist monks in Lowell, Massachusetts. Just, I've had so much fun with it, man. So much fun. So that's how we landed it. They wanted me to be the big angry guy. They wanted Peter to be the designer guy. And, you know, we stepped into those roles and had a lot of fun. And we figured four episodes and done, Sean. You know what I mean? I figured we would be out of the game after that. But we got the highest ratings ever on A&E Network for that time slot. And they said, okay, we need 13 more episodes. And I looked at Peter and I'm like, dude, we only do about three houses a year. Now they want 13 in a month. What's going on? So that was it, man. It was off and running. And, you know, the upside is obviously national recognition, you know, I haven't been on TV in years, and we get on the call together prior to recording. You're like, hey, I never had a TV guy before, a TV star. Ain't no star. I'm still a blue-collar guy in a white-collar world. But, you know, it gave us a lot of exposure. You want a funny story? Listen to this one. Let's hear it. So you're getting it anyway. I'm talking now. I'm on a roll. I got a call from my ex-partner, Peter, I don't know, August last year, September, somewhere around there. And he said, we hadn't done business together in a couple of years. And he said, uh, Rachel Ray just called me. They want us to do a bit on the show. And we've done like three bits on the show over the years. And when I say a bit, I mean like, oh, let's make a mirror out of a kitchen frame or, you know, stupid stuff. Let's spackle something and make it pretty. So anyway, America loves that silly crap. So I'm like, what do you mean? We've been on TV in years. He goes, I don't know. They still want us. I'm like, all right, what do they want to do? He goes, I don't know. They want to film some stuff. Do you want to do it or not? I'm like, yeah, whatever, I'll do it. And I always thought to myself, I wonder what they do, whether they like dig up old TV stars, you know what I mean? Like Dave and Pete from Flipping Boston and Dr. Bounty Hunter. Who else is out there? I mean, they could grab some of them other flipping, Armando Montalongo, you know, grab some of those old farts who ain't doing it anymore, right? And put us on a Rachel Ray episode. I'm like, what are we doing? But we did it. But here's the good news. We did it, right? We did a thing with a barn door, and Pete did something with making a countertop look like a butcher block. And America's clapping their hands and smiling. But the funny thing is, is because it was our fourth time, I think, or fifth time being on Rachel Ray, they had to pay us now, baby. They had to pay us. I actually, last week, got a check from SAG, which is the Speakers and Actors Guild. I got a check from SAG for royalties. Because they played our episode in Hungary. Huh? Hungary, baby. I got a check for $275.22. Bam! How'd you like them apples? So now I'm, I'm, now I'm big time, baby. Now I'm big time. So, you know, that's some of the fun side of the TV world. You know, recognition was good. A lot of Today Show episodes. 
lot of business stuff. I mean, Squawk Box and CNBC and those kinds of things. You know, if I share an opinion, people kind of listen to it. You know, you're perceived as an expert, even if in some cases there's a lot of people who are perceived as experts, as we know, aren't necessarily experts. But hey, who cares if they're working in a White House? I don't know what that's all about. But hey, um, how you doing? Do you see the way I snuck that in there real quick? But yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Uh, towards the end, it got a little tedious, but it was a blessing. You know, it definitely changed my life for sure. For sure. Sure. I'm sure the national recognition has opened up many opportunities as well. That's exactly it, brother. Yeah. I had this call, I know yesterday or the day before I was talking to a physician. He's, he's an investor with us and he asked that question. He's like, give you like a leg up or, a, or an opportunity. And I said, look, absolutely. I said, the doors that I can get opened would take, you know, my equal a lot longer to get opened. I can send out an invite on LinkedIn and I get CEOs and CFOs from various organizations that I want to connect with that freely open up that door. So that's an absolute blessing to be accepted first rather than uh, you know having to qualify myself every single time I want to make a connection. So that's definitely one of the biggest values with that for sure. And then being able to help people too, being able to work in those, those education arenas and you know, and stay grounded, stay grounded and make sure you're talking about deliverables. You know, I was blessed, man. I I never, you know, I I look back at it today and I think about how crazy it could have been on the other side of the equation. I'd be in Las Vegas three times a month working, you know, Las Vegas is a scary place if you've got no controls, you know, and I'm just blessed that I was always in a good place with my home life and business to be able to be in, in pretty much any arena. Nothing intimidates me today. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. I could sit down with Warren Buffet tomorrow or Mark Cuban, you know, the owner of the Boston Red Sox. John Henry, if you're listening, don't forget to reach out and make an appointment. You know, those meetings don't intimidate me today because I have nothing to prove. And yet I have a lot to give. And, you know, that came off of the TV show for sure. Yeah, I know there's probably no way that you can help someone replicate that because you you can't just get anyone on TV. But what are some of the tips that you can give to someone who wants to you know, increase their media exposure? Because like you said, it does create those opportunities. It's not as hard as people you know, make it out to be. I don't have the time nor the tenacity to dial in social media. So I've outsourced that. But I still need to produce that content to have people engage. So we all spend way too much time on social media looking for content and grabbing it up, right? But it's also a really great classroom to see what works and what doesn't, right? Why does Gary Vaynerchuk have so many followers? Ty Lopez was, you know, one of the founders of the long form video, for example, right? You can go out there and study what other people are doing. And then today, let's just be honest, man. I know you can't see it. You can, but the rest of the world can. I can run my business from my iPhone today. I stick it on a little tripod and I start talking and edit it down and throw it out there, throw it out onto social media and be vulnerable and look for feedback. You know, I don't obviously not TikTok because it's not my demographic or my age group, but I spend a lot of time networking, like I said earlier, in LinkedIn. And then my team picks up the slack and takes care of the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams and all of that stuff. Because the truth of the matter is, if you want to be have a successful show, for example, I would honestly suggest forget the networks, you know, Home HGTV won't be there 10 years from now. You know what will be there 10 years from now? Online streaming, online creators, online influencers, and the younger generation that 
I unfortunately am no longer a part of, you know, they understand that world. My 25-year-old son has never owned cable TV and never will. He gets his news from Reddit and he lives in the world of online streaming. If he wants to learn something, get something, hear something, he knows where to go. He does All he needs is an internet connection. So we can influence greatly through those services as long as we know what our avatar and demographic is and then dial our message in to connect with them. Just create a show. Create an online show. Do it for fun. Don't do it with any huge ulterior motive. Do it for fun and see what kind of traction it gets or doesn't get. You know, But that's a low cost, man. That's a low cost way to build. Yeah. I actually started creating a small YouTube channel about a year ago just creating like, you know, real estate investing tips and stuff, especially from all the guests that come from our show. And it's surprising. Actually, YouTube pays a good amount of money. Like I just hit 1,000 subs and now I'm getting like a couple bucks a day. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It is cool. Absolutely, it's cool. It's very cool. The world is changing, man. And people either change with it or they resist it. You know, if we take a look at COVID, whoever thought that we, you know, we would never have the need to go to retail stores. COVID has become a great equalizer. I don't think I will ever make a phone call from my office again. I think it will all be in a Zoom video environment. There's so many different platforms right now. And it's like to crank up that YouTube and build that following. Yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. But I think it's a critical piece of business today. Really is. You know, you get a couple of bucks a day from YouTube. I got 250 bucks from Rachel Ray, you know, from eight years ago, whatever, whatever the case may be. You know what I mean? So residual income, no matter how it shows up, is always nice. I prefer the tenants to pay the rent. That's my favorite kind of residual, but you get the idea, man. Yeah. And let's talk about like the new normal of the market. You know, here in the Bay Area, we haven't really seen too much of a price difference due to COVID, you know, because of... Uh, Inventory is low, demand is still relatively high, so prices are kind of flat. How is it like over in Boston? Yeah, it's the same thing, and it baffles me. It baffles me in one sense, and then I understand it in the second, and I was just finishing a presentation up prior to our call. The herd mentality of FOMO, right, the fear of missing out, is very, very, very strong, and it amazes me that there isn't any fundamentals or intelligence in the residential marketplace right now. Because like you, I'm seeing everything go under agreement, everything that's decent, under agreement in, you know, 24, 48 hours, you know, low inventory, high demand. And there is enough mortgage capital out there that people can still close on these assets. But what they're not paying attention to is the fact that the huge amount of the economy right now is being propped up with Mickey Mouse money. It's not earned capital, man. Look, I understand PPP. One of my businesses participated in it, and it was good that it was there. But, you know, they keep on printing money and pushing money into the economy. Well, we all know we're not an economist, but I'm intelligent enough to know that if you keep printing money, it devalues the buying power, if you will, the value of a dollar bill. And at the same time, if that gets devalued, well, inflation goes up. So we're on the precipice of hyperinflation. We're on the precipice of an, a huge market correction. And you could market calendar. You know, and look, can I be wrong? Yeah. But guess what? I'm investing as if I'm right, meaning that the corrections come in. And if Q4, Q1, they just pushed it out again. You know, let's throw another trillion dollars at it, see if we can stop the boat from sinking. The boat will sink. Will it crash and burn? No, but it will absolutely take a huge dive. It has to. There's no fundamental support in any of this. So, you know, that's kind of my take on it. But it's the same thing here. But I have never lost a dime in real estate investing. So I'm not going to start 
hoping and wishing that, you know, six months out from now, I can use the same after repair values that I use today because I can't confidence believe they're going to be there. So I stay away from it. And the price of real estate in your market, my market is, is just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. How did it ever get there, right? How did it happen? So I just pay attention and I have to do everything based on fundamentals. Otherwise, I'm not going to play. That's the way I look at it. So what are you doing differently now? I'm not interested in single family buy, fix and flip real estate. I'm not interested in single family buy and hold. I will be incredibly interested in both of those strategies six or eight months from now, but I don't not you know, participate because of changes in the marketplace. So for us, I had to step back in the early part of this year at a hard money lending business that was propped up by Wall Street that went out of business in three days because it was propped up by Wall Street. So when my line of credit required me to turn the notes over in, you know, five to 10 days, and my takeout partners in Wall Street said, and I'm not buying those anymore, non-QM is, uh, you know, way too scary during COVID, I'm out of business. There's no capital to lend. So I kind of stepped back and looked at it, Sean, I said, what's the big lesson here? The big lesson is, is controlling the capital. Did my own research, uh, realized very quickly that there is trillions of investor dollars sitting on the sidelines. You know, we call it dry powder, ready to go. So where's the smartest place for that powder to go? Cash flow. I'll say it again, cash flow. I'll say it one more time so everybody hears, cash flow. If the transaction doesn't cash flow 30 days after acquisition, I'm not interested in it. I'm not interested in a buy, fix, and flip for six months. I'm not interested in a new construction building east wherever, Toadsuck Ferry, Arkansas. I have no interest in any of those long-term plays right now. I have interest in cash flow on the day of acquisition. So what does that mean? Well, that means multifamily assets because I buy those at the actual numbers on the day that they're performing. So for me, that's the game plan. I don't want to do it small because the buying opportunity is huge going forward. And we decided to go into private equity to put this together. A $100 million raise, private equity fund investing in multifamily assets. We focus primarily in the Gulf region because my partner's done about $125 million down there in his own career with investor capital. Paid them north of 20% internal IRRs over the life of his career down there. So it's stress tested. It works. And now we just put it on steroids, man, to bring it down to a base level. I raise as much money as I can. I have my investors own a piece of the company, the fund, rather than syndicating, which has more risk attached to it for obvious reasons. So if I've got, you know, 40,000 units or 100,000 units inside a fund broken down over multiple units and one of those units takes a little side turn, I don't have to worry about quarterly distributions to my investors. So they buy in on the economies of scale and the expertise of the operators. So that's where we're at today, man. And that's it. That's my career from this point forward. Don't call me with a wholesale deal. Don't call me with a single family flip. Don't call me with a little fourplex or a sixplex. I'm not interested. You know, if you've got 40 to 150 to, you know, maybe 160 units in a B-class property that meets my buy box buying criteria, call me and I'll take it down. If you're looking for a higher rate of return on your capital than most other vehicles in the marketplace, call me. I can help you out. And that's really the business model. And then having the verticals to execute on that business plan is obviously critical. Asset managers, marketing team to stabilize and turn the assets around. 
construction crews to go in there, you know, take care of the deferred maintenance. And our business is called a core plus investment. So, you know, it's absolutely the right time. And I'm excited about it, man. I'm excited to be able to offer, you know, great investment, alternative investment opportunities to our investors. But at the same time, I'm excited to be able to give decent housing at decent prices to the people who are going to get brutalized by the COVID hit. I was looking at forbearance stats today. Just shy of 9% of our country's mortgages are in forbearance. 9%. Huge portion of it in Freddie and Fannie loans. And, you know, the banks just told us the other day, if you were listening, they just put $30 billion uh, free capital aside for the inevitable default of loans. Now, not many people heard that. The average Joe who's going to an open house this weekend to pay too much money for a house didn't hear that, right? But we did, right? We're investors. We're intelligent. We pay attention. We ask questions. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. But I'll be prepared for sure. Yeah. Sounds like you have a very exciting plan going forward. I kind of want to clarify something too. You said you have raised $100 million to purchase multifamily assets. Are you trying to buy things on like the equity side or are you trying to have like a fund for the debt portion for people to borrow money from you? No, the fund itself is the owner. So they come in and they own shares or units. It's called in the fund. So the fund owns the assets. It's a five, six-year plan. One year of stabilization, five year, the fund is liquidated. Over that five-year period of time, then all the investors participate not only in the cash flow, but they'll also participate in the equity at time of liquidation. So that's how you can offer those higher returns. And to create a fund like this, is this also considered like a 506C offering? Yeah, it's a 506, Reg D 506C offering, correct. Our egg filing went through a couple of weeks ago. And it's interesting to really look at the amount of hoops people have to jump through to invest. But I get it. It's designed to protect them and protect us, right? We only bring in accredited investors and it's a $100,000 minimum investment. Most of the conversations are communicating around two fifty to 500000 investment. You know, it kind of blends out right in the middle. But, you know, the lower investment option is 100000 The fund has a private placement memorandum which needs to be accessed through our investor portal. You can't just like throw it out there on the internet and say, have a read. You know, if you get a private placement memorandum for somebody and you haven't shown your ability to be classified as an accredited investor, then, you know, that operator is already showing you that uh, they're an amateur. There's rules, there's regulations, there's processes. You know, this isn't just like a handshake at a real estate investment club meeting. This is serious finance. So it has to be done appropriately. But we have preferred returns of 6%, and then they share in the upside of the cash flow over that 6% return. It's a 75-25 split with the operators, with the fund managers, obviously the larger portion to the investors. And then the same thing at time of liquidation. It's a 75-25 split. You know, my job is to invest alongside them, which we do, and at the same time to maximize those returns on the investments. We have a online portal. So our investors are right in there. They can see what their capital is doing. They can see what we've taken down for investments. We do an internal biweekly meeting. We do an annual in-person, you know, like weekend with our investor group and we bring in some partners and some speakers and some training and education. It's a community. It's a community and, and it's growing. It's growing faster than I hoped it would <laughs> just because I feel like I'm playing catch up sometimes. But Again, it goes back full conversation, right? You let the experts come in and my team my team picks up the processes and keeps everything moving. 
And the difference between a fund and a syndication is a syndication is usually just for one targeted asset, whereas a fund is like, we're going to rely on you to pick out multiple properties, but you have this fund that's a pool that you can just buy whatever you want. Yeah, we also um, made it what's called a hybrid fund. So we have a 10% allocation of capital for our hard money lending business. And the reason that we did that was is that, you know, COVID eliminated a lot of the amateur lenders out there who were relying on, you know, other capital sources. And they were basically just putting themselves in the middle. And like I told you at the beginning, I learned that lesson myself. So I wasn't going to walk away from the hard money lending business because it's of service to the qualified investors. You know, more money down, good FICO scores, good experience track record you know, good verticals and infrastructure to execute on the assets that we lend on. So we have that ability as well. It's a machine. It really is. It's a machine, but it's well-oiled, it's proficient, and it works very, very nicely. Awesome. Well, Dave, this has been an amazing conversation. Do you have any last tips for listeners before we end our show today? Yeah, man. You know, I don't want to be kitschy, but educate, don't speculate. Just understand that educated investors will walk away from 100 deals to do one. Uneducated investors will go, hey, I saw this house. I think it's a good deal, right? That's the amateur. The professional understands underwriting process systems, you know, execution. So educate, don't speculate. Understand that we're going to go through some pain in the next six to eight months. But it's America. As long as we stick together, we're going to be okay. And we'll come through the other side. We always have. We always will. It's just the process. So I hope it's been valuable. I've enjoyed the conversation, man. Oh, me too. Do you have any like, uh, books or resources that you'd like to share? Yeah. If your listeners could just jump over to our company site, it's freedomventure.com. Freedomventure.com. If they scroll down to the bottom of that page, there's a download for a free ebook. It's a book that I wrote with my uh, asset manager, a gentleman by the name of John Dessauer. He's from Chi Town, Chicago. And he's got a very, very substantial record himself as an investor. So we wrote that book, free download. It's called Unlocking the Code to Multifamily Investing. Go in there, just write an email and a number, and uh, we'll give you a download for that book. Perfect. And Dave, how can people get in contact with you? Again, Freedom Venture is a great place to go, freedomventure.com. If any of your listeners do anticipate you know, exploring something more along the side of the fund, then there's ways to get information on that also on, on the Freedom Venture site. If you want to try and grab me direct, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. So the last name spelling is Seymour, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R. And that's with Freedom Venture. If you want to find me, you can find me. Perfect. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, man. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks, and have a great day.